We're here to take a look at T.S. Eliot's four quartets. And we're going to do this in four sections uh, throughout the day. And I'll speak for around half an hour on each of the four sections. And there'll be a little bit of time for conversation both at the end, but also um, during our time together. Obviously, I won't be able to go through line by line of the four quartets because we'd be here for several months. So I do have to select uh, passages and uh, you might want to bring up others uh, when we talk. Um, to save time, I'm not going to give you a long biographical introduction to T.S. Eliot. I'm sure most of you here will know the basics of that and it's very easily discovered if you want to pursue it uh, online or in several biographies. But just to uh, remind you of uh, his historical and geographical setting. He was born in 1888 in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. He studied at Harvard and at Paris, and in 1914 he came to England, where he stayed for the rest of his life. He married Vivian Haywood in 1915. Uh, that was not to be a happy relationship. Uh, he taught for a while. He then joined Lloyd's Bank for eight years, during which he wrote some of his finest work. It's interesting that people with humdrum office jobs often end up writing very good poetry. Um, the Irish poet Dennis O'Driscoll, for instance, who was a, a civil servant all his life, once joked with a, an eye to J.R. Goulding that he was more Lord of the Files, but it certainly made him very imaginative when it came to his uh, poetic creativity. And you could say the same with people like Philip Larkin sitting in his library. Eliot's first collection, Proofrock and Other Observations, was published in 1917. He also wrote a lot of literary criticism, essays and so on, uh, for which he became uh, quite a public figure and respected, almost godlike actually. By 1921, he was at work on a long poem, The Wasteland, during which his health broke down and he convalesced in uh, Lausanne and Margate, where he eventually completed it. There was a very mixed reception, of course, to that uh, uh, modernist poem. In 1925, he leaves the bank and joins the new publishing house called Faber and Guire, where he worked for the rest of his life. Of something um, that we would be very uh, uh, drawn to, something very significant, his conversion in 1927. Um, after the early 1940s, Eliot turns his hand more to writing drama than poems. And it's interesting that The Four Quartets is really one of his last major significant poetic works and it's very much based in the Christianity, the Christian faith to which he was converted. By those early 1940s he was a public figure by now and in 1948 was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. It happened to be the same year that his wife, from whom he had been long separated, died. And in 1957 he married his secretary, Valerie Fletcher. And those last years were very happy, though he did suffer ill health. Uh, he died in 1965 at the age of 76. 
So that's just to remind you very briefly of the outline of Eliot's external life, as it were. Uh, it is an amazing period of history when you think. Uh, so the day he was born, you have Jack the Ripper being mentioned in the newspapers. Uh, and as his ashes were making their way to East Coker following the funeral, uh, Penzias and Wilson were confirming the Big Bang Theory. So this is an extraordinary uh, period of human history. And it is important to remember this uh, as preparation for the dive that we are to make into something of his inner life um, that came out of these external uh, lives around him. There's something else I think I need to say as we begin. Uh, most of you, I guess, have read T.S. Eliot, and most of you will at times have found it really hard. You sort of dip a toe into Eliot and uh, stub it. <laughs> it hurts. So just two things to remember. First, difficulty can be important. Our lives know this. We, we know that the difficult times... Uh, where we struggle and maybe collapse um, and need picking up. Those are often the times that contain, when we look back, contain uh, the most potential uh, and the most openings. Uh, so difficulty can be important, and we forget this in an age that seeks quick clarity and quick information and so on. I often say, for people who aren't used to reading poetry at all, particularly difficult uh, poetry, that it's a little bit like booking a holiday to Belgium um, if you would think about what you were doing to go to Belgium you would be looking online looking for the flea markets the restaurants you wanted to try out you may be even trying out a little bit of Flemish to to get your way around uh, you may be looking up the nightclubs or whatever uh, draws you what you would know is that once you got to Belgium, at some point or other, you were going to be at a bit of a loss. You won't be able to understand the signs. You won't know what you're eating. Uh, you won't understand why the national monument is a small child peeing into a fountain, and so on. But you would sort of accept that to be at a loss is actually part of the fun of being on holiday and uh, the comfort of strangers, uh, how we rely on other people to guide us through uh, our uh, at-lossness, as it were, uh, becomes very important. And so it is, I think, with reading difficult poetry. You, you just have to accept that you are going to be at a loss at times, and that's okay. That's, as it were, part of the, of the holiday, part of the fun. And this work, The Four Quartets, has a musical title. And I think that's interesting because perhaps you need to see this work more uh, as you would a piece of music. You don't keep asking of music, you know, what does it mean? What does it mean? You just allow it to play, to wash over you, through you, and to see what changes it brings about in you. You can't verbally summarise music. It's abstract. Uh, you wouldn't say, if you were listening to a Beethoven quartet, oh, this is difficult, what does it mean? Um, you would just listen. And I think, I think uh, that's a helpful model for entering into the world of the four quartets. Because at the end of the day, uh, poetry is not there to inform, to, to give you information. 
it's there to form, to help your human formation. And Eliot was to ask in his uh, choruses from the rock at one point, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And certainly his poetry, I believe, was an antidote to this uh, takeover, as it were, of our souls by information. Secondly, just a quick reminder that poetry isn't about sort of gingering up uh, ordinary language. It's not making prose just a little bit more flamboyant. It's actually the opposite. Poetry is about distilling language, and that's why Eliot thought its difficulty was important. It should be a language that is brittle. It should bother you. It should be blunt and stark, flat, uh, often with Eliot, it, it has a prosaic feel, but it's reaching into the sublime, as it were. It's pushing your boundaries. And many readers suppose that uh, poetry is a sort of fancy trimmings. Uh, but on the contrary, certainly in Eliot, poetry is language brought to its most scorching, its most succinct, its most um, pellucid purity. It's a little bit like one of those Bunsen burners that we probably had in our chemistry labs at school, uh, where we want not a bonfire, but that really small prick of blue flame. That's the heartland of, of uh, poetic language, that scorching blue small flame. My guess is that many of you will know Eliot's early poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And you'll remember what the hapless Prufrock says. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Well, that's exactly what Eliot does ask in the four quartets. What is it? Uh, and to get towards truth, uh, you do need the sharp, unlikely language to carve yourself nearer to the heartland of the real. So we shouldn't be surprised that to get there, the language is awkward we will be stuck, frustrated, puzzled, probably exasperated. Uh, but I do promise you that's because this is a work in progress within you. Poetry allows this creative freedom. The meaning happens within us. We construct the meanings rather than are told what they are. This is what the... Uh, poet, another difficult poet in many ways, Geoffrey Hill calls the democracy of poetry. I often refer to uh, a phrase of Louis McNeese's, the splash of words, where a poem hits like a pebble the surface. Uh, there is this initial splash of words that you know, make us silent or takes our breath away or leaves us puzzled, whatever. And then those ripples um, start out, heading towards our shore, heading towards our shore in order to, to wash over our, our edges. <clears throat> and so uh, I think the splash certainly happens in Eliot, and the ripples take often some while to start uh, washing over our shore. One of the problems of reading T.S. Eliot is that, is that you tend to think 
he's much better read than you are uh, and there, there are a lot of illusions and quotations uh, within his work that um, are rather lost on you because actually we haven't read all the uh, classical works and so on that he has. One of the things we can do with T.S. Eliot is think that everything uh, is somehow symbolic. You can come across a garden and you can say, well, you know, what's this garden? Is it Eden? Is it the resurrection garden? Is it Babylon? Uh, what is it? And I'm convinced that in Eliot, you don't so much have symbols everywhere. You just have cases in point. It's a garden. But we ask, well, what is a garden? And off your mind wanders. It's a disciplined space. It's disciplined. We culture it, as it were, to bring about beauty, fruitfulness. It's ordered. It's attended to this space uh, to make things grow. And, uh, and then, of course, we, we start to see why this garden m might be there. Likewise, you find horseshoe crabs in the quartets. In uh, one of the uh, 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 quartets, we find reference to the horseshoe crab. What do they symbolise, people will often say? What, you know, what does the crab mean? Well, nothing. It's a horseshoe crab. They are themselves. But, of course, they are one of the oldest living forms of life on earth. So when you come face to face with a horseshoe crab, you're face to face with this titanic mystery of the passing of time. And you're left to wonder what hails me when I see such ancient life at my feet on sand. So not a symbol, but a case in point. Eliot never comments on his poetry uh, rather like a sculptor um, saying, you know, this is an arm as he's making it, you know, pointing to it so that you know. Um, he doesn't do that. He just says, well, keep with me, keep following my work, watch how I'm shaping my materials, and what emerges uh, is what you will be looking at. What emerges is the answer. Uh, several times he comes back in his life to saying that Often his poem knows things which he didn't. It's containing more than he, he knows himself. The Four Quartets was not originally conceived as a sequence of four poems. The idea of some unified poem composed of four separate poems only suggested itself to Eliot as he was writing the second uh, of the sequence. Uh, as I said, it was the last substantial poetic work that he wrote before concentrating on drama. He worked on the poems uh, over a period of several years in the late 1930s and early 40s and the quartets were published eventually in 1944. Remember of course what was going on in uh, Britain uh, during those years, the Second World War, the Blitz and so on. He'd converted to Christianity several years before, and Eliot thought the quartets would help the reader get on track to understand the work. He thought quartet would help you understand that he wanted to write these poems in a particular set form which he'd had elaborated. So he weaves together um, unrelated themes so that they form a whole each of the quartets takes its title from the name of a place. 
and it's thought that each of the quartets also has one of the four elements infused in it. Uh, in fact, some people think that those are the four instruments of the quartet, the earth, air, fire, and water. In some ways, the quartets uh, read as a, a wounded or broken man. Remember his uh, unhappy marriage, his ill wife, the war, and so on. This wounded, broken man in search of the urgently essential that's in danger of being eclipsed or lost. It's um, a poem, I think, haunted by a fear of things he cherishes disappearing from view. And he's piecing them back together to ensure their safety. Um, in this poem, you're finding alienation uh, towards reconciliation, exile. I think that's an important theme in the work, a sense that um, human beings are living in, in an exile and need to be directed home, certainly exiled from a language that resonates within the soul, of sense, of meaning that is deeper than the surface. Uh, St. Augustine is uh, lurking in several parts of the poem, and I often think that his uh, comment that, I found myself wandering far from you, O God, in a region of unlikeness, uh, is is pretty pivotal to this work. I think we find ourselves in this region of unlikeness within the four quartets. Like music, there are um, recurrent themes in the quartets. Um, poetry and music both exist in time. They are temporal progressions. And the overriding theme of the four quartets is one... Um, well, it's a theme that doesn't really bother the animals or the birds outside, uh, but it does trouble us perennially, um, you know, if your brain's working on more than one what, and, and that is the riddle of time. Time passes, and we're subject to it. And yet, within this time, we have these Wordsworthian intimations of immortality, this sense that were made for the things that will not fade, that our life is more than some mere sequence, more than delayed ashes. You know, human beings are more than just delayed urns of ashes. We are time-ridden, and so time must be the condition of either our salvation or our damnation. Um, Valerie Elliott reported that Eliot thought of adding an epigraph from Dickens' Pickwick Papers to the quartets. Uh, the quote was, what a rum thing time is, ain't it, Neddy? Well, perhaps wouldn't have fitted so well, and perhaps Valerie was right to steer him away from that, but it's a telling quote, what a rum thing time is. And I think certainly uh, in this poem, by the time you finish it, you get a very strong sense that human beings have been given a, an inestimable gift, and it's called their being, you know, this, this present, um, interesting two meanings of that word. We've been given a present in the present, and it's the gift of being. And 
the gift that we're asked to give back in return for it is our becoming, who we become. Are we to uh, become, as he will talk a little bit later, uh, vacant? Uh, are we to become distracted? Are we to become just natives in this twittering world, as he calls it? Or are we to become something um, that is uh, more in the image of our creator and our source? Neither plenitude nor vacancy, only a flicker over the strained, time-ridden faces, distracted from distraction by distraction, filled with fancies and empty of meaning, tumid apathy with no concentration, men and bits of paper whirled by the cold wind that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before time and after. So there we are, men uh, with their bits of paper, unwholesome lungs were, were breathing in a sort of air of alienation from ourselves and from our source. Uh, we also have a sort of spiritual halitosis. Um, we're empty of meaning. We have lots to live with. We don't have anything to live for. Our strained, time-ridden faces. Who will save us from this? Eliot here says that we only have words for the things we no longer wish to say. And I think the four quartets for me is certainly his attempt to create the words for the things we do deepest down want to say. But that place is such a foreign and a distant place in us, we find it hard not only to find ourselves there, but to give voice to it. So Eliot, um, like all the good poets, does not borrow words. This is not a borrowed language. He is searching for the language that will point us back to that source. And in some ways, the work is frightening. Uh, it's about death. It's about the overwhelming chances of a life missing our cues by this ridiculous distraction. Uh, it is also about the beatitude, the blessing that is in our life, if you attend to the hints and to the guesses. It's about the dark interstellar spaces in which we can tumble through mere inattention and indifference. So this is no light reading. This is about the salvation of your soul. It is about how human your human being is. Uh, so, I hope you're ready. <laughs>